Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, For the last few weeks, we have uh, been looking together at Luke's story of the final days of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem before his arrest and his crucifixion. So all of the action that we have looked at has taken place in and around the city of Jericho, which is about 12 miles from Jerusalem. Jesus uh, has healed a blind man, and this blind man uh, acclaimed him as the king, called him the son of David. And then Jesus arranged a dinner party with Zacchaeus, and that dinner party concluded with uh, one of the most important statements that Jesus ever made about the shape and mission of his life. He said that he had come to seek and to save the lost. So you put those uh, two things together, as you can be sure the disciples did. And the message is clear that this is a king, and he is on a rescue mission. And uh, the disciples, and particularly the 12, got that message loud and clear. Um, But as we saw a couple of weeks ago, they continue to misunderstand uh, exactly what that mission will look like. And so their, uh, their dreams about what this mission will accomplish, their dreams about their own place in that uh, are far too small. So Jesus tells them a story. It is uh, the longest of the parables that he told, one of the longest, one of the most complex, and it's the last recorded teaching of Jesus before he enters into Jerusalem. So I'm going to read that for us now. It's uh, Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept, kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you. Because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, as we heard uh, in the Old Testament lesson, in this moment now, we're going to talk about this word that we have read and heard together. We're going to meditate on it, think about it for a few minutes. And in doing that, what we're really doing, whether we acknowledge or not, is lifting our eyes up to you who sits enthroned in the heavens, and we are asking you for mercy. Father, tend to us, care for us, every one of us who's in here, those of us who are hungry and and thirsty and ready to hear from you, those of us who are not because we have been running or because you seem distant to us. Meet those of us who aren't even sure why we're here. Show us the grace of Jesus and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, do you all uh, remember the uh, flatten the curve chart? You remember that? Um, I'm sure some of you do. Two years ago, that chart was everywhere. I mean, there was no place you could look where you didn't see it. That chart actually made its first appearance in 2007 in a uh, paper that was published by the CDC that I'm guessing at that time probably about eight people read. Um, it simply and elegantly illustrated how certain mitigations during a pandemic can lessen the strain on healthcare systems. But people like you and I started seeing that chart. Uh, when someone in New Zealand, a doctor in New Zealand named Susie Wiles adapted it to the then emerging COVID pandemic. And not long after that, governments and municipalities all over the world uh, started using it and applying it to their own approaches to the pandemic. Our own previous federal administration adopted it as part of a 15-day plan to flatten the curve and slow the spread which sounded great. But of course, we all look back now and go, well, it was a little more complicated than that. (laughs) And honestly, I think that's a great way, a helpful way to think about this parable that we just read together. Jesus told it in part because his disciples supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, like within days. And the parable of this nobleman and his servants is Jesus' way of saying, well, (laughs) it's a little more complicated than that. And it's far more beautiful. And people like you and me have a place in it. Complicated things are often made clear or more clear by stories. And so Jesus tells his friends and he tells us a story. And it begins like this, a nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and return. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And so this is the first plot line in Jesus' parable. And I got to tell you that it would have sounded pretty familiar to those listening to Jesus. Uh, Jesus doesn't do this very often. He doesn't make references like this very often. He does it a few times. But it's almost certain that in this story, he's alluding to a guy named uh, Archelaus. 
Uh, He was the son of Herod the Great, and Archelaus did exactly what Jesus is describing in about 4 B.C. When his father died, who was Herod the Great, uh, Archelaus went to Rome to petition Caesar Augustus for uh, the ratification of his hereditary claim to rule Judea. This is what patron kings did all of the time under Roman rule. They had to go and ask the Caesar if it was okay for them to start ruling as king. So he was followed, this guy, Archelaus, was followed by Rome, to Rome by a delegation of Judeans who hated him <laughs> and who said to the Caesar, we don't want him to be our king. So Jesus is drawing the parallel, and it is pretty chilling. Jesus is the hated king. Yeah, he's, he's headed to Jerusalem. We know because we know the whole story. He's headed to Jerusalem, and yes, for a few moments, Jesus will be heralded as the king. He will be called the son of David. We know, and we'll talk about it next week, hosannas will be said, palm branches will be waved, cloaks will be spread, songs will be sung by the kids, but we all know how it goes down in the end. There's this powerful delegation who will do anything that they can to thwart Jesus' kingship. They do not want him as a king, and so they take every cheap shot, and they tell every lie that they can cook up to make sure that he doesn't become the king. And of course, by Friday of the following week, it looks for all the world that that delegation who hates Jesus has gotten their way, and they have gotten their way with prejudice. And so I'd like us to stop for a moment and ask where you and I might be situated in this first plot line in Jesus' parable. I mean, I know we're not that delegation who was in Jerusalem. We're not the ones who hate him and don't want him to rule over us, I know. But if we can be honest, we will, all of us, admit that we have our own resistances to his rule over us. Every day, Jesus threatens my autonomy. Every day, Jesus threatens my way of doing things, my way of being in the world. Every day. Every day, I'm tempted to come up with all kinds of reasons why the best ruler over me is me. And when I follow through on that, when I live into that temptation and live it out as if I know better than he does, as if I fake, you know, like I'm the true king of the world, the effect is always the same. Frustration and sadness and isolation from the people that I love and discontentment and dislocation and all of the stuff that comes with it like anger and fear and guilt and shame. And you know, knowing that that's what's going to happen doesn't lessen that daily pull, that daily temptation to be my own sovereign. And maybe you know what I mean. (laughs) And so Jesus tells this parable in part to cause people like you and me to ask ourselves, where will the habitual putting off of Jesus as king leave us in the end? Part of following Jesus means that we let him cross us. It means that we let him ask things of us. It means that we let him require things of us. Part of following Jesus, church, means that we make ourselves contingent 
to his teaching on what it means to be a human and what it means to live and love in this world. I mean, that's what it means to have a king. And more importantly, maybe than that, that's what it means to actually love someone. I mean, if we say that we love someone and we don't let them cross us and we don't let them require things of us, then what we really love is, is just an object, a measly projection of our own desires and not another human, not another person. And so Jesus tells this parable in part to ask the crowds around him and to ask us, will we let him cross us? Will we love him as king? So now Jesus shifts to the second plot line in the parable. He leaves that first one over on the side to cook, to stew a little bit. He says before the nobleman leaves, he calls 10 of his servants and he gives each of them a mina. A mina is about the equivalent of three, three and a half, or four months' pay for a day laborer. It's not a lot of money at all in the first century. And when this nobleman hands them the mina, he gives them really specific instructions. Engage in business until I come. In other words, while I am off in the far country, use what I am giving you. Essentially, he's given his money to his servants so that they can do like he would do if he was still there in that place. He gives them his resources so that they can essentially be him in that place while he is gone. So Jesus says he returned from the far country having received the kingdom. This nobleman is now a king. And he calls all the servants to whom he had given the money in to see what they had gained by doing business. Jesus doesn't give us details of all ten of them. He only tells us about three of them. And the first guy is clearly an overachiever. He says, Lord, your mina made ten, mine is more. And the king is delighted. And he gives this guy a reward that comically, outrageously outstrips his level of performance. He gets responsibility for 10 cities. Like, hey, you get to run the East Coast. Church, it is important to hear what the king says to this guy. You have been faithful in very little. He doesn't commend him for being a killer businessman. He doesn't commend him for crushing the competition. He doesn't commend them for making heads roll. He says, you were faithful, even over a very little. Second guy does pretty well, too. His initial mina made five minas. And again, his reward wildly overshoots the bounds of the work that he put in. This guy gets five cities. And this is an important part of the parable church. If we haven't gotten it now, we need to get it. There is no way to overstate it. This king, this king is incredibly generous with his rewards for these first two guys. He is absurdly, ridiculously generous. Get yourself a king like that. And then the next guy comes. And he said, Lord, here's your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. He has not done anything with what he has been given. 
It's not that this guy made investments and he lost them. It's not that he, you know, I had a really good run and then things got bad right before you came back, King. It's just that he didn't do anything at all with what he had been given. He had been given the king's money to be the king while the king was gone. But effectively what he has done is acted as if the king didn't even exist. Not that he puts it that way. He's got a whole line ready to tell the king, I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you didn't deposit, you reap what you didn't sow. Church, you got to know there is nothing, nothing at all in this story up until this point to suggest that that's even remotely true about the king. That that's the kind of man that he is. As a matter of fact, all that we know about the king up until this point in the story is just the opposite. He's wildly generous with his resources. He gives out freely to clowns on top of it. And just the tiniest bit of faithfulness, just the teeniest, tiniest bit of faithfulness reaps these incredibly huge rewards. I mean, you get ten cities in this guy's economy. He didn't say, make me rich while I'm away or else. He just said, engage in business until I come. Just use what I have given you. But the third servant, didn't choose, he chose not to see that. He imagined that the king was cheap and hard and stingy. And so he acted cheap and hard and stingy. The unfaithful servant's problem was that he didn't know or that he refused to see what the king was really like. And that's why the king condemns him with his own words, points out the foolishness of all that he has said with his own words. He he asked him, oh, is that what you knew about me? (laughs) Well, if that's what you knew, why didn't you at least even put my money in a bank? I could have had a couple points interest. But you didn't do anything at all. And now Mr. Ten Cities is going to get all your stuff. And that's the end of the second plot line in Jesus' parable. And we're at a good place to start putting them together now. Remember, Jesus is telling this parable because everyone around him thought that the kingdom of God was going to come in all of its fullness as soon as he rode into Jerusalem. So Jesus introduced that first plot line, the one about the delegation of citizens who hate him and don't want him to be king, to say, that's not exactly how things are going to go down. It's more complicated than that. And by the end of the next week, it will appear that that delegation of hateful ones has gotten their way. But this is the point. Jesus does not want his disciples to be confused about the events of the week that they are about to head into. Certainly, when they look back in hindsight, he wants them to be able to put it together. And just as importantly, he does not want them to be surprised by the life beyond that week that he will be calling them to live. He is going to seek and save the lost, and that will mean a cross first. And then through his resurrection and through his ascension, it will mean a new people, a brand new people. And church, that's you and me. That's us. And that's why Jesus weaves in that second plot line. While we wait for the king to come back from the far country and establish his kingdom forever, our job 
is to be faithful with the things he has given us. To put it another way, uh, if we are followers of Jesus, our job in this world is to use what he has given us to be him in this world. Our job is to faithfully engage in his business, to do what he would do with the things that he has given us until he gets back from the far country. In the New Testament lesson, the the Apostle Paul put it really uh, very clearly, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, we've got minus. (laughs) All of us. We've got minus because the risen Jesus has given them to us by his Spirit. Talents, gifts, abilities, resources, creativity, desire, Ingenuity, diligence, it's a wealth of stuff. It is a wealth of things scattered with divine intention and scattered with this comical overabundance on people like us. And we're supposed to use those things for the good of the church and for the life of the world, just like Jesus did. And church, the way to this parable, please hear this, the way to this parable doesn't fall on trying really hard to be a 10 minor guy or a 5 minor woman or anything like that. The weight of this parable falls on simply being faithful with what we have been given. This part of the parable causes people like you and me to stop and to ask ourselves a really simple question. Am I being faithful with what he has given me to be him while he is away? Are we as a church, as a people, being faithful to be him with what he has given us while he is away? To the extent that we're not, Jesus tells this beautiful story about the servants and the minas and the nobleman who becomes king as a gracious call to repentance. And we can't forget this little detail of the story. We can never forget this part of the story. The way that we view that king will in large part determine what we do with what he's given us. If we think he is cheap and hard and stingy, we will be cheap and hard and stingy. But if we believe, if we believe because we have been given incredible grace, that he is gracious, if we believe that he is even prodigal and comically so with the gifts that he gives, we will be gracious. And we will be prodigal with those gifts. And I want to suggest that as counterintuitive as it might seem, the dark ending of this parable is actually a pointer to how gracious Jesus really is. Jesus ends by returning to that first plot line, the one that he set on the back burner to cook and to stew for a little bit. He says, as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now that is absolutely a note of judgment. It's positively a note of judgment. In order to have a world that is uh, completely set right, in order to have a world of peace and of justice and of righteousness, in order to have a world of the good and beauty that the king promised, 
than the ones who plot for self-serving, the ones who plot for self-dealing against the king, they have got to go. And this parable and the whole story of Scripture says that it's true. But there's a scandal, isn't it? In the way that this story actually works out. Because the stubborn fact of the week that Jesus is heading into remains before that week is finished. It will not be the king who slaughters his enemies. It will be the king who willingly lets his enemies slaughter him. And while they are doing it, Luke says that Jesus' prayer, the king's prayer, is, Father, forgive them. Church, that is generous, prodigal grace. That is a love that is beyond all loves, that orders every love. This is a grace and this is a love that makes a way for escape and it makes a way for forgiveness and it makes a hope for new life happen, even for enemies. And through repentance and faith, we have been made the objects of that grace. And we have been made the objects of that love. So let's use what we have been given to make that grace, to make that love visible all around us. Let me pray for us. Father, give us ears to hear. <laughs> and give us, uh, give us new eyes to see these things that you have given us, these m multiple gifts that you have given each of us as individuals and us as a church. Help us to be faithful. <laughs> Help us to simply be faithful with what you have given us. Do that so that we will grow up as Christians. We will mature as Christians. And do that so that through us, this broken world around us can see your grace and your love. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.